Reading first of all from uh, John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then in John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the coming uh, to the earth that was such a, a monumental event and, and for what it uh, prepared the way for you to do. And so we, we ask that you would guide, be with Tom, be with us, and, and give us understanding hearts and hearts that were fill, uh, full of praise as I read the Christmas story again this morning, I couldn't help but notice how everyone who was a part of that birth was rejoicing with great joy. Help us to do that as well, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. My title this morning, Born That Men No More May Die, it's again taken from uh, my favorite Christmas hymn of all time that we just sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The original words of that great hymn were penned in 1739 by Charles Wesley, the brother of uh, the very influential evangelist John Wesley. But the version that we just sang includes some changes and additions made by a good friend of John and Charles Wesley, named George Whitfield, and that's not in most of the attributions that you find in hymnals, but uh, the actual title of the, of the hymn is from Whitfield. Uh, when you set all that to music by the renowned composer Felix Mendelssohn, you end up with a, a hymn with an extraordinary lineage and history. But what makes it my favorite Christian hymn is not its, its pedigree, <laughs> it is that it captures beautifully the truth of Christ's incarnation. Uh, our focus last Sunday is summed up marvelously in the second verse of that hymn, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The one whose birth as a human being we celebrate uh, every year at Christmas is the incarnate deity. He is perfect God made perfect man. As John's gospel tells us in the opening verses that we looked at last time, Jesus, the one who is called the Word, existed with God before all things were made. 
He was and always will be God. He is the word by whom and for whom all things were created. When God spoke all of the, the material universe into existence, uh, as is recorded in the first chapter of your Bible in Genesis 1, it was not merely the sound of God's voice that caused that universe and all that is in it to come into being. It was the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. He is the Word by whom all things were created. This is the One who came from heaven to earth, became man, and dwelt among us. So the first purpose of His incarnation is bound up with all of that that we just, just said. It's bound up with who He is. That first purpose is to show God to man. Jesus is the man who gave mankind an in-person look at the character and the ways of Almighty God. Uh, John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18 says, No man has beheld God at any time. The only begotten God, He has explained Him. Every time in human history that human beings have seen a visible representation of God or heard God speak to them, the person that they beheld, the person who spoke, was the same second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Because no man has seen God at any time except in the Son. But it wasn't until that same eternal person came from heaven to earth and became human, became man, that mankind beheld the greatest and the fullest revelation of God that mortal men have ever known. When Jesus was born to Mary, He didn't merely take on the appearance of a human being. He took on our flesh. Our humanness in every way. He who is always fully God became fully man yet without sin. And His incarnation was permanent. He took on human flesh forever. When He was crucified, His body died just like all of our bodies will unless we're still standing when He comes back to claim His bride. When He was raised from the dead, He was raised bodily, physically. The grave was empty. Just as we who believe in Him will soon be raised bodily. So the first purpose of Christ's incarnation was to show God to man more clearly, more perfectly, and more personally than would ever have been possible to accomplish any other way than in person. This morning we're going to consider two more magnificent purposes for which God the Son became God the perfect man. One of those purposes is summed up beautifully in the third verse of the hymn uh, that we just sang together. Mild He lays His glory by, born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. The eternal Son of God became man to redeem sinners. We've talked about that a lot in the worship already this morning. 
He came to transform rebellious enemies of God into righteous sons and daughters of God. And in order to accomplish that transformation, he had to bear the punishment that we, that we deserved. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to die. The Son of God had to be made fully and perfectly human in order to pay in full the, the debt that we humans owed to our perfectly holy God. Only the atoning death of the sinless man in the place of sinners uh, could free sinful men and women like you and me from the curse of death that, that we all fully deserve. Now about 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God declared that saving purpose for which the one who would be king of kings had to first suffer and die at the hands of men. That passage that was written 700 years before Christ came is Isaiah 53. And I'm just going to read verses 4 through 6 and verses 9 through 12. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet He was with a rich man in His death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils of battle with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Magnificent declaration of the substitutionary atonement of Christ 700 years before he came. To become the only guilt offering for sinful men that would satisfy the requirement of our perfectly holy God, the Son of God had to be truly and fully human. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 to 28 says, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up 
himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Hebrews 10 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can never suffice to pay for our sin, to pay our debt to God. Only the death of the sinless man could ever pay that that horrible debt that eternal and infinite debt. That chapter, Hebrews 10, tells us that the sacrifices that were commanded under the Old Covenant were never, they never had the effect of fixing our sin problem. In fact, they reminded us of sin year after year. They were pointers to the one and only acceptable sacrifice that was yet to come at that point. The sacrifice of Jesus. That's what John the Baptist meant when he saw Jesus approaching and he said to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The long-promised Messiah and Savior had to be born as a baby from the kingly line of David. Just as had been prophesied through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. And then Micah chapter 5. To pay the debt of our sin, the Son of God had to be tested and proven righteous as man. He had to face the same temptations and the same tests that you and I face every single day. And he had to face them without sin. Every time you read in either testament the word tempt, Both in Hebrew and in Greek, that word also means test. It's the same word, translated differently. Tempt and test. We're going to see that word a couple of times this morning. The eternal Son of God had to leave the glory that belonged to Him from eternity past. He had to humble Himself by becoming a man. He had to divest Himself, not of His deity, never of His deity but of His manifest glory. And He had to become like you and me. He had to be born as an infant with all of the same utter dependence and constant need that every baby has. But what Jesus suffered in His life here on earth went far beyond the hardship that is common to all human beings here under the curse. When Jesus was no more than a toddler, he became the target of man's murderous intent. Matthew chapter 2 tells us that King Herod, in a panicked effort to do away with the competition, to do away with the long-promised king of kings whom the Magi from the east had come to worship, commanded that every male child in and around the town of Bethlehem, two years old and under, be executed. Imagine that. There was something very important that Herod didn't know. Jesus came to die. But it was absolutely impossible for any man to kill the incarnate Son of God until the hour had arrived that God had decreed from eternity past for His Son's atoning death in the place of sinners. 
Many men got to see the evidence of that simple fact. You could not kill Jesus until the appointed hour had come. Lots of people tried. Only the God-ordained death of the perfectly righteous Son of God made perfectly righteous man could ever cancel out the sin debt that every one of us owes to God. Half measures would not do. Mixing our righteousness with His righteousness would not do. You know why? Because we have no righteousness. Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks after God. There is no one good, not even one. We have nothing to add. We bring nothing to the table. Lost people have nothing to offer. Dead people have nothing to offer. There is no such thing as a man other than Jesus who possessed any measure of righteousness in the eyes of God. Jesus said so. In Luke chapter 18, a young man whose religious fervor had gained him riches and honor and authority within the Jewish community in, in Jerusalem came up to Jesus and he said to him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You notice Jesus did not say, I am not good. He said, no one is good except God alone. <laughs> and the right answer to the question, why do you call me good, was, well, I call you good because you're God. But that man was not ready yet to acknowledge Jesus as the long-promised Son of God and Savior of sinners. Jesus set before that young man the most important truth that any man will ever know about men. That man knew the law of God very well. He taught it. And he declared to Jesus the, that he had kept that law ever since he was a boy, a youth, in all of its requirements. But when you believe that you're righteous standing in the eyes of the perfectly righteous God is about your own merit, there is always going to be a question in your mind as to whether or not that merit is enough. Starting with the first words out of Jesus' mouth, the answer this man got from the Son of God overturned everything he had ever understood about the righteousness that God requires of men. Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The vast majority of people who believe that there is a personal creator God to whom we are all accountable, the vast majority also believe that what God requires of human beings is doable if we just try hard enough. They're sure that God could not possibly require sinless perfection, so their target is to just be good enough for God. And the rich young ruler, like many other Jews in his time, believed that there was some particular good work that a man could do that would push him comfort comfortably over the goal line. This was very common in that day. Something, some particular good work, really good work that would guarantee 
that there was enough righteousness there to ensure that he had eternal life when he died. This is the same essential notion of righteousness uh, that drives some Muslims to spend their life savings to make a, a hajj, a pilgrimage to Mecca while they still have enough life left in their bodies to, to, to manage the trip. Their faith tells them that a personal pilgrimage to the holiest site in Islam is like a whole bunch of points of extra credit on the biggest final exam of all time. It cancels out a whole bunch of sins. Surely if they've done reasonably well with the rest of the assignment, that pilgrimage will put them comfortably over the top and they can rest assured of a place in paradise. I wasn't a Muslim, but I believed the same thing when I was a young man. When my high school biology teacher asked me one night, Tom, if you died tonight, you stood before God and he asked you, what right do you have to enter into my holy presence? What would your answer be? And I said, well, I would tell him that I tried really hard and I hope it was good enough. Praise God, that dear man said to me, wrong answer. Then he showed me the right one. A while back, I watched a video of a lengthy debate between a Muslim apologist and a Christian seminary professor on the topic of salvation. At one point in the debate, the Muslim said that because God is so gracious and so merciful, He magnifies every good thing that we do so that one good thing offsets many of the bad things that we have done. How convenient for us. He actually went so far as to say that in this way, God has made it easy for men and women to get into paradise. This guy is one of the most respected debaters making the Muslim case today. In other words, what he was saying is it's easy for our sins against the perfectly holy God to be canceled out by us. As long as we get a good dose of help from God tossing in extra weights on the good side of the scale when there is absolutely no basis for Him to do so except that He is compromising His own holiness. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth that is clearly and everywhere revealed in God's Word. The Bible never in any way presents our salvation as easy. The magnitude of what it cost God to save even one sinner is beyond our ability to comprehend. And the measure of that cost is the poured out blood of the only begotten Son of God. During the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, He blew the doors off of every compromised conception of the righteousness that God demands of every human being. He made a couple of things crystal clear. First, when it comes to the righteousness that God requires of human beings, the only passing grade is a hundred. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus told the multitude that unless their righteousness surpassed that of the people that they considered to be most righteous, the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jerusalem temple, 
Unless their righteousness surpassed that of the scribes and Pharisees, they would never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus spent the rest of that chapter answering the question, by how much? By how much does my righteousness have to surpass theirs in order for me to enter God's kingdom when I die? After making it painfully clear that the righteous requirement of God applied not only to the outward behavior of man, but to the innermost heart and thoughts of every man, Jesus then gave mankind God's unambiguous final answer to the by how much question. In the last verse of chapter 5, He said, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. What you and I and every other human being must understand about the righteousness that God requires of men is that He requires His righteousness of His image bearers. No other righteousness passes muster with God. Ever. And the second thing that every human being must understand is something that Jesus made also made entirely clear. And that is that the only man who has ever met that perfect standard of God's righteousness is Jesus. No one else even qualifies to be called good. Not even a little. No one is good except God alone. Is there any ambiguity in that statement? So unless Christ's righteousness somehow becomes our righteousness, you and I would all be everlasting toast. And that, friends, is why God the Son had to become man. If God was okay with good enough, then the Son of God had no reason to come from heaven to earth. He was wasting His time. But Jesus didn't come to help lost sinners. He came to save lost sinners. Praise God. Sinners who had absolutely no prospect of ever meeting the standard that God's holiness and righteousness demands of every human being. The Son of God had to become the Son of Man. The sinless Son of Man. James 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point shall be guilty of all. The only passing score is a perfect score. Only a sinless man could stand in the place of sinful men to pay the eternal penalty for our sin. And there has only ever been one sinless man. If Jesus had sinned even once, even as a teenager, He would have needed a sinless sacrifice to pay the debt of His sin. <laughs> And that can would have been kicked down the road forever. Jesus had to live a perfectly sinless life as a man in order to be, become the, the acceptable sacrifice for you and me. There was no other way. Only His perfect sacrifice in our place could pay our debt to God and only, only His perfect righteousness credited to our account will qualify us to stand before God for all eternity. There's no other qualification. The only merit any of us will ever have to dwell with 
the perfectly holy God is the merit of the perfect man. That's what John meant in John 1, verses 12 and 13 when he said, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right, the right to become children of God. That is to those who believe in His name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. The right, the merit to be counted as children of God does not and cannot come from us. It's His right, His merit, freely given to all who receive Him, Jesus and how? how? How do we receive Him? Well, He says it right in that verse. Even to those who believe in His name. That means that is. When He says to as many as received Him, that is to those who believe in His name. That's what He's talking about. That's how, that's how we receive the righteousness of Jesus. By believing Him instead of us. By trusting in Him instead of us. Or anyone else. Or anything else. Just in Him. It's amazing that something so simple can be so amazing, so elusive to the mass of humanity. Either it's a gift or it doesn't exist. We can only have a righteous standing in the eyes of God if He gives it to us when we don't deserve it. And the only basis upon which we can have that righteous standing is Jesus' blood and righteousness. Alright, so the, the first purpose for the incarnation of the Son of God was to show God to man more fully, more clearly, and more personally than could ever have been done any other way but in person. The second purpose for the incarnation of the Son of God was to save lost sinners, helpless sinners from the eternal penalty of our sin. And the third and final purpose this morning that we'll look at for the incarnation of the Son of God was that so, that so that He would become our perfect high priest in all things pertaining to God. In the Old Testament, the high priest was the mediator between God and His people. He represented the people in the eyes of God and He, re he represented God in the eyes of the people. The first facet of the high priest mediation on our behalf, the real high priest is tied up in the purpose for his incarnation that we've just been talking about. He was crucified in our place in the sight of both God and man. Jesus is our perfect priest because he made himself our perfect sacrifice. He had to first be perfect man to be both of those things. But there's another facet of his mediation on our behalf that's still going on every single day of our lives here on earth. The crucified, resurrected, and ascended Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father is our perfect advocate. Hebrews 7.25 says, hence also, is saying, it means since He lives forever, which was the point just established, since He lives forever, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. 
In the first verse of 1 John chapter 2, John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. Now, I do not at all believe that this means that some kind of endless court case is going on ad infinitum in heaven in which, the God, in which God the Father is hearing a constant barrage of accusations against us and Jesus has to keep stepping up over and over to refute those accusations so that we won't be punished for them by our Heavenly Father. Beloved, the defense has already been made. The verdict and the sentence for all of our sins has already been determined and dispensed. The accusations against us are true. And our defense is always the same. Our one and only defense is the cross of Christ. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that for the joy set before Him, He, Jesus, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our advocate, who is our sacrifice, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, court is over. The case is won. Our advocate who is our sacrifice has done it all. The perfect, sinless life and atoning death of the one whose righteousness we, in whose righteousness we are now clothed not only fully qualified us to dwell in God's kingdom and presence when we die, but qualifies us right here and right now to stand blameless before our Father every moment of every day. I hope you know that. I hope you believe that. That's God's promise. The presence of our advocate sitting at the right hand of His Father, whom He has made our Father, is all that is required for every accusation against us to be met, not merely with the verdict, not guilty, but with the far greater verdict, covered and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the verdict all the time. And Christ's advocacy on our behalf not only secures forever our righteous standing in the eyes of God, it also grants us constant and unhindered access to our Father's throne of grace. All the time. <laughs> when that curtain was torn, that, that 30 foot tall, four layer thick curtain was torn in, in two from top to bottom. Beloved, the doors were thrown open to everyone who trusts in Jesus. There's no more barrier between you and God if you believe in Jesus. You are His beloved son or daughter. And He delights when you come into His throne room. He delights. Bold access is what Paul exhorts us to. And it, the writer, sorry, the writer of Hebrews, I didn't give something away there. I'm not saying that, that was in, in Hebrews chapter 10. Bold access. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 says, Therefore, He, Jesus, had to be... Made, had to be made like His brethren in all things, that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
And then listen. For since he himself was tempted slash tested in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted and tested. But the aid or the help that is spoken of in that passage didn't end when the debt of our sins was covered by the blood of Christ. It continues for all of our earthly lives because we have been made the brethren of Christ. He was, quote, made like his brethren in all things so that he could help his brethren in all things at all times. Now, if you're thinking, but wait, isn't it the Holy Spirit who is our helper, our advocate day by day, not the Son? God's answer is, is both, always. Actually, it's all three persons of the Trinity, always. God indwells us in the person of the Holy Spirit, but, but the triune God is right here in all of us. Read John 14 and John 16. God, Christ said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. And then he, a little later, he says, I'll send the help of the Holy Spirit. And then right after that, he says, I and my Father will take up residence in you. Most of the Old Testament, a lot of people don't know this, most of the Old Testament uses the word helper. Let me put it this way. Most of the occurrences of the word helper in the Old Testament are in reference to God helping people. Isn't that wild? Most of the times that the word helper is used are about God helping people. Our focus this morning is on the purpose of Christ's incarnation. So listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about this advocacy purpose in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 verses 14 to 16. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted, tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. The participation of the Son of God in the suffering and death that is experienced by both the wicked and the righteous on this earth did not begin the night He was arrested. It began when He was born. Just as it did for you and me. Our Savior knows firsthand what it's like to be a little child, completely dependent on His parents and on His family to care for all of His needs. He knows firsthand what it's like to have to learn to speak, to learn to read, to learn to reason. He knows firsthand what it is like to have to navigate the minefield of communicating with and, and working together with sinful human beings, with people who are petty and selfish and manipulative, with people who are hypersensitive to criticism, people who won't tolerate criticism, and people who think they have the spiritual gift of criticism. <laughs> he knows firsthand what it is like to be betrayed by people that he sought to love and to serve. He knows firsthand what it is like to do life with people like you and me. 
Because Jesus experienced life on this cursed and corrupted earth, surrounded by all the same stressors and hurts and injustices that surround you and me at every turn, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted and tested. All the time. It's so easy for us to minimize that and to miss the preciousness of, of this beautiful truth. <laughs> for us to think that because Jesus is God in the flesh, His life as a child and as a boy and as a man had to be infinitely easier than yours or mine. But beloved, that ignores the crystal clear testimony of Scripture that when Jesus came from heaven to earth, He emptied Himself of many of the benefits of His deity. By the eternal decree of the triune God, Jesus made Himself like us. He chose to become dependent on His Father and on the Holy Spirit like we are. He intentionally made Himself dependent so that He would be as we now are in all respects except sin. This is beautiful. This is a marvelous truth. There's nothing more practical than this, beloved. Nothing. Jesus did not buffer His humanity with His deity. Such a notion is not to be found anywhere in the New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus. He suffered and He died as one made fully man so that all of our suffering may now be laid upon Him. All of our suffering for all of our life. Jesus was born to die. Not only to die for only a day or a couple of days, but to die for 33 years. He was born to die for 33 years. An assignment that He finished on that first Good Friday when He took His last breath in mortal flesh hanging between heaven and earth on a cross. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10, Paul says that we who belong to Jesus are, quote, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. The next verse says, for we who live are constantly constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And five verses later, it says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. Jesus, the Son of God, became man. He spent 33 years in a mortal body like yours and mine. Mortal means destined to death. Mortal means subject to the corruption and decay and pain that came upon man and upon man's domain because we sinned. Not because he sinned. He didn't sin. He suffered because of our sin. He died 
to take away our sin. And He was raised to life so that we will be raised to live with Him forever. Brothers and sisters, as we think about and hopefully talk about the incarnation of the Son of God with our families and our friends and with people that God sets before us over this next week and all the time, may we do so with, with hearts full of boundless gratitude. May we overflow with gratitude because the eternal Word, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Loving Father, thank You for this incomparable gift that You have given to us in the person and the completed work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You, Lord, that, that He is the perfect revelation of the living God to man. Thank You that He is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And thank You, Father, that He is our perfect Advocate and High Priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. He is always, always helping us in this life to give us all that we need by the power of His Spirit. What a gift, Father, what a gift. Use us this week, we pray. Give us many conversations. Give us boldness to speak of this One who is all to us that is life indeed. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.